Hi folks, it's Dr. Christine Sauer here with Sparkles for Mental Health. And I'm very excited today to have a really experienced person here. His name is Dale Walsh, right? No, Dale Walsh. Yes, Dale, sorry. And Dale has experienced schizophrenia for 47 years and has grown up to become a poet mental health coach and financial educator. What a story. Dale, uh, just for clarity, I myself have been diagnosed with schizoaffective disorder. I have completely recovered, I'm fine now. I was fortunate it started later. My son is a paranoid schizophrenic. Okay. It certainly takes a toll on somebody's life. Tell us about your story. When did it start for you? What were your hopes? What happened? Uh, well, thank you very much for having, having me, Christine. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. And thank you for uh, giving me the opportunity to tell my story. And uh, so, so I was diagnosed. Uh, I, I went, well, to begin at the very beginning, I was uh, born in Midland, Texas. Uh, my mother divorced my father. And the divorce apparently was finalized on my first birthday. And I went, so she remarried and I had a second father who was the only father I knew growing up. And uh, he, and I was in Abilene, Texas. I had an ideal childhood. It was like an idyllic situation. And uh, so at the age of 10, my mother met another man, divorced and remarried. And I went from uh, Abilene, Texas to Midtown Manhattan. And uh, that, that obviously changed my life and my whole perspective and everything. Uh, but so I went to boarding school in New Hampshire for four years and I ended up at Dartmouth College and uh, I had a very successful freshman year despite the fact I was uh, doing drugs every day I was I was like a marijuana addict and uh, you know did did hallucinogenics and everything and I really think that's the reason that I I mean my mother had had a, had a, a mental illness that was never specified what it was but I think I had biogenetic predestination, uh, you know, disposition to uh, to mental illness, and I think the drugs just basically the thing that threw me over the edge. So, uh, I, I what what happened at Dartmouth was I I came up with what I thought was a great joke, which was, "Hi, I'm God," and so I was like walking around campus telling everybody my hilarious joke because how could God be five foot eight? So. Uh, you know, I was doing this for about a week, and then one night the uh, campus police came in and they said, are you Dale? And I said, yes. And so long story short, a week later, or actually four days later, I was in a mental hospital in New York City for 13 weeks uh, wow. with the diagnosis of schizophrenia, and that led to a, a program in New tell, tell us a little bit about that time the first time in the mental hospital, how did they treat you? How did you feel? What did you do? Because many of the listeners have never set a foot in it. Now I know what's going on. I was myself, myself, but right. many of the listeners don't. Okay, well, uh, basically uh, when, 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 when they took me away from Dartmouth, I didn't really know what was going on. I mean, I didn't know what was going to happen. I knew what was going on, but I didn't know what was going to happen. And uh, so I spent the night at my parents' house and 
I had my parents' apartments, and uh, I uh, and the next day they took me to a hospital to a to a building which was uh, the mental health mental hospital, and uh, I I sat down with the doctor and we had a very nice conversation, and uh, my mother was always like very proactive when it came to psychiatrists and everything. So uh, he, the doctor put a paper in front of me and said, sign this deal. And I looked at my mother and she said, sign it. So I'm not, I never argued with my mother. So I signed it and my parents got up to go and they went left and I went left to follow them. And Dr. Cohane uh, said, no deal, you come with us, you come with me. So I was like, put on a locked unit for 13 weeks. Uh, and it, it was a real menagerie of, uh, of characters there. Uh, but as I said, I was basically going with the flow and you know, I, I knew that my life was changing, but uh, it was, uh, well, I, I guess the easiest way to say it is, it, it was a completely uh, life-changing experience, but uh, I, I would talk to my doctor and I, I'd say, why am I here? There's nothing wrong with me, which is a classic symptom of uh, schizophrenia. But uh, he said, well, if you broke your leg deal, you come to the hospital, yes? And I'd say, yes. And he'd say, well, you broke your brain. And this, this, uh, this, this simple statement that he said one time, like haunted me for the next 35 years because I was convinced that there was something like terribly wrong and I would never be able to be healed or recovered. Even as I was like graduating from college and doing all sorts of, you know, major things. But uh, so uh, actually my roommate's name was Gabriel and he was like this big Argentinian uh, prophet type who, who had had like a half his brain removed because he had a brain tumor. And so that's why he was there. And so I, I you know, I, I, I very rarely got down on myself or depressed because I was in the mental hospital, but it was like, it was constant, like a consciousness of survival. And she was like, what am I doing here? You know, and, you know, everybody, now, when, when you were in a mental hospital, what do you do all day? Uh, well, basically, we, we would have like uh, physical therapy that there was like a big game, uh, the ninth floor was like a, a recreational area. And so we would play volleyball, but basically you're just like killing time. You know, you're just like seeing the doctors taking your medication. You know, it gets to a point where you're, you're uh, judging your days or you're measuring your days by medication time, you know, and, and also uh, like meals and everything. And um, so, did you ever pace the floors back and forth? Because I did that when I was there. Oh, sure. Uh, you, you pace back and forth. I mean, there's really nothing to do most of the time, you know. I mean, they have activities. Uh, I mean, when, when I uh, came to New Jersey, I was hospitalized 14 more times. And, you know, I, I, I got very comfortable in the hospital and I sort of used it as a, as a getaway from the intensity of the program, but uh, basically, uh, so, uh, you know, we would just socialize. I did a lot of reading. I got my typewriter and I was writing poetry, uh, which has always been one of my uh, main main uh, focuses and hobbies. And it's more than a hobby, actually. Wow. But, uh, what kind but, of poetry did the writer do you write? 
Uh, well, at, at first, my poetry, well, I, I should start by saying, Dr. Dr. Christine, that on my 10th birthday, I decided I was going to be a writer. So, you know, writing was always like my, my main focus. And uh, so uh, when, when I got my typewriter, I, I didn't have any ideas for a book, but I, I just uh, wrote poetry as therapy and like explaining to myself what was going on and, you know, how I was perceiving and everybody liked the poetry a lot. Uh, but, you know, and that, that also killed time, you know, but basically it was just like people would sit around and, you know, eat fruits or, you know, or, or something and watch TV. I never watched TV. So, you know, I, I, I always had to occupy myself, but it was just like a life, a sedentary life of a watching TV, going to meals and getting medication. Yeah, most people don't know what's really going on there inside. There's not much going on. Did you ever have a psychotic break where you acted out, got angry, or had to be confined to the QT room? Quiet room? No, I was never put in a quiet room. Yeah. But, uh, I, Many people don't know that there exists one. Right. Well, the quiet room was, was for like people who were like uh, aggressive or violent. And, you know, it, it usually involved like a five, five to seven security guards and, you know, a, a emergency shot of Haldol or something, but uh, that never really happened to me. Uh, but uh, yeah, it, the, the thing about mental hospitals is everybody has like this, you, you know, this, this negative view of it. And I guess it is pretty negative, but the, the bottom line is you don't do much. You just like have to kill the time and hope you get better. And, you know, everything's arranged around sessions with the doctor and everything. Yeah, and for some people, it is kind of a reprieve from the stress of everyday reality. Was it that for you? Uh, yeah, well, especially when I was in, uh, I was in a psychiatric program for young adults and adolescents for five years. And uh, during that time, I was hospitalized nine times, and it was always the same hospital. And I became very, like, not not only comfortable there, but also familiar to all the doctors and the nurses and everything. So when I would go to the hospital, it'd be sort of like a homecoming, you know, it's just like I'm here. Yeah. yeah. And uh, but but actually, the the hospital in New Jersey was like much more focused on like, you know, like keeping patients busy and you know had a lot of activities and everything but uh it, it, you know I definitely used it as a as a, a sanctuary from the uh, pressure I would feel being surrounded by the same uh, group of people talking about therapy 24 hours a day seven days a week and it was just like such an I mean it, it was like a good atmosphere but it was like a therapeutic atmosphere but it was just like too much for me so i would you know i it would cause me to go psychotic and then i'd be put in the hospital for two weeks two to six oh, wow that must have been frustrating it was well what was, <laughs> what was most frustrating is a lot of times when i got put in the hospital i i felt that i was like reaching a new level of enlightenment or you know of clarity and but you know, the doctor would see it differently and say I was going psychotic. So, uh, you know, I mean, the doctor was very good, but we we definitely had like philosophical and, and uh, you know, 
behavioral uh, differences about what was what was reality and what wasn't. And sometimes those are actually found in in reality. Sometimes I feel as a even when you're labeled as a schizophrenic, it's not necessarily schizophrenic because some people that did great things in past years, in past centuries, would maybe now end up in a mental hospital. Right. Well, but there's certainly uh, people that have a complete break with reality and are better off in a hospital. And a modern hospital is 100% better than the hospitals where two or 300 years ago. Absolutely. And people were chained, lobotomied, and given cold water treatments and draconic stuff like that. That does not happen in hospitals. And what you see in over the cuckoo's nest does not happen like that. Right. Well, I, I think Hollywood has like a very jaded, jaded, you yes. know, view of uh, hospitals. But you know, they don't. Some hospitals aren't good. You know, they just like leave you in a back unit. And you know, one one thing I'm most proud of, Dr. Christine, is uh, you know, I was hospitalized 15 times and I got discharged 15 times. So that's it. And how long was was when? How long ago was it? The last time you were discharged. Uh, 29 years. I, wow. It's 1993. So let's go back. Your journey started like for many people that have a little disposition, genetic disposition, as you said, to have a psychotic break with drugs. My own son got schizophrenic after he was into marijuana heavy, just like you. That happens a lot. That's why I always say marijuana is not good for young people. Right. And after 15 hospitalization and discharges, 29 ago, years ago, you never had to go back to the hospital. What do you think the reason is for that amazing uh, recovery? Well, first off, uh, after, five, after being in the program for five years, I went back to college and I, I got my degree. I graduated magna cum laude in English from Fairleigh Dickinson University. Wow. But, uh, you know that I, I was at, I was at Fairleigh Dickinson as a student for five years, but the first two years I was basically alienated from by by my illness. You know I would tell everybody I was a schizophrenic, and they they would all basically run away. You know, uh, but I, I learned how to so I relearned social skills. You know it was like a whole process where I basically had to learn again how to be around normal people, mm -hmm. normal people. You know. And, um, There's no normal people in my books. Right, right. There's but, people. You know, well, <laughs> well adjusted or not, non neurodiverse or whatever you want to call them. But I, uh, but so I, I, you know, that that was like really where my recovery began, because uh, you know, getting back into a normal situation of like college students and you know being able to talk about like uh, say Plato and Nietzsche rather than about like uh when am i going to go to the hospital next was so like a very liberating situation absolutely and, you know but uh the the foundation was laid at the program for my for my recovery uh and then after uh, after graduating from fairly dickinson i uh, i i started my own business as a tutor helping people write college papers wow so i that that's how i supported myself and uh then I got disability for, you know, I, I used to say the government pays me to be crazy. So. <laughs> well, I mean, to some extent, it makes sense because the disease took a large amount of your life. Right. 
but it, so uh, so I also was writing poetry and doing the tutoring and then uh about four or five about three years ago I came up with what I thought was another brilliant idea which was why don't I use my experiences and my knowledge of schizophrenia to help the families of those who because as you know Dr. Christine you know when, when hey, Christine it's fine okay okay Christine but as you know Christine when, when psychosis hits there's no way to prepare for it and it, it comes out of the is like a lightning bolt out of the blue every time. And, you know, fam it can destroy families. And I realized, you know, my, my parents were very strong and they helped me and everything. But, uh, but you know, I, I know how much pain I caused them and how, how much they struggled with my illness, even when I wasn't struggling with my illness. I mean, I, I, my, my doctor diagnosed me, gave me a diagnosis of psychotic bliss. So I was in bliss all the time, but uh, you know, it was like tearing up my family. And so, you know, as I got more aware and more insight into my illness, I realized how much I'd hurt my family and I wanted to rectify that with as many people as I could. You know, that is really amazing. So now you are coaching the families of schizophrenic or also schizophrenic people themselves, if they want to hear from somebody that knows it. I, I don't deal with the uh, patients themselves. I, I, I leave that to the professionals. But mm. you know, I, I just give pe I give people. You know, I, I try to give people hope. You know, I, I use myself as a role model. I said, yes. you know, I, I've come out of this, but it took it took like a long time. You know, and a lot of people are very impatient, and you know, and and they don't understand that. You know, schizophrenia. I, I used to say. Schizophrenia is a life sentence; it's not a death sentence. So, uh, you know, but you know, just being able to like understand the illness, I think, is like essential to not only keeping your own peace of mind, but also helping your loved one to recover. Yeah, yeah. So, what do you think? What does recovery from schizophrenia look like? Uh, well self-sufficiency, you know, being able to, like, I, I mean, most, most I, I, I've been very fortunate in, the, in my journey and that I've had my own apartment for 41 years, uh, you know, and that, that's pretty extraordinary for a schizophrenic, but, you know, but just uh, what, what I say is, you know, that the, the definition, according to the Greek, of uh, schizophrenia is shattered mind, and so what I, what I feel recovery is, is you take those the parts of your mind that are shattered and you put them again into a mucus salt where you can cope and you can uh, really like understand not only yourself and, and the illness, but also, you know, live in society. And uh, that, that's one thing that I've, uh, I'm proud of to be able to do. But, uh, you know, I, ha I have friends who are schizophrenics and uh, when, when I was first diagnosed, the, uh, they would say that 33% of schizophrenics get better, 33% stay the same, and 33% get worse. So, uh, you know, I just try to give hope. And, you know, as for your question, shattered mind, you know, you, you really have to like, it's more like, you know, breaking a vase or something. And you, you can like 
do it with gold and you can put it back together with gold and make it stronger, or you can like just like, like throw it out. So I think that's what happens a lot is that people get so discouraged because it's such a slow path sometimes that they just throw their broken, shattered vase out instead of like sticking with their loved ones. And uh, that, that's one thing I want to help people with. You know, I really love that attitude. So when you talk to the families of loved ones, often young people, their lives is disrupted by their terrible illness. Uh, what are the main issues that those people have? What does people face? The parents see, oh my God, my child is totally recluse in his room, uh, writes all day or is completely out of it. And he doesn't even want to go to the hospital or the doctor because he thinks he's fine. Right, well, I, I'm sure you know the term agnosognosia, Christine, uh, but that, that's, uh, agnosognosia is, is uh, Dr. Am Amador, Xavier Amador is, uh, is like the expert on that, but he wrote a book called I'm Not Sick and I Don't Need Help. And uh, that, that explores agnosognosia, which is a term from neurology for stroke victims who don't realize they're sick. And it's not like they're in denial because they just can't comprehend that there's anything wrong with them. So, you know, that, that's one of the things I, I address with uh, my clients is, uh, you know, how to deal with agnosognosia and like, you know, through empathetic listening and, uh, you know, and through just being open to conversation and being without judgment about your loved one, you know, because, you know, I, I'm at, in an extreme case, for instance, you know, a schizophrenic will say to his mother, you aren't my mother, you're a demon, and I'm God. So, you know, I mean, how, how, you know, and the, the react, the, the, the normal thing is to react and say, of course, I'm your mother. How can you even say that? But rather than saying that, say something to the effect of, I understand you, you don't believe I'm your mother, but could you tell me why? You know, what, where, where's this thought coming from? And, uh, you know, to get, to get the background on the thoughts and to like really like help people understand not only themselves as, uh, as the loved ones of the schizophrenic, but also uh, the schizophrenic himself. Yeah, now in the public, there's often that notion that schizophrenics are the people that commit crimes, but it's not true. Most right. schizophrenic never commit a serious crime. But there are those that go untreated for way too long. And sometimes it can help for a relative when their loved ones goes too wild to call the police, have them committed, as hard as it may be. Well, I, uh, I, 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 have, a, I have a group that I, I sort of uh, attend once every two months. It's a family group. By a, by a mental health organization. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I just, it's, you know, people tell us stories and everything. And I think of like one man who has been like the sole guardian of his schizophrenic son for the last 30 years. Mm. And he was talking about how, you know, how his son was realizing they couldn't live in the house after his father was dead and everything. So, but, you know, that incremental, build up of insight is, is like crucial to recovery because uh you, you know basically if you're psychotic you you're in the in a dark pit and to be able to feel your way out 
takes a lot of uh, illumination from other people. Yeah, I, I really like that. I really like that the way you say it. And I know sometimes it just gets too long. I remember we were in Germany years ago and we were called for house call to a patient and her parents called us because she was breaking windows and she was totally out of it. She was schizophrenic and threw stuff around, destroyed everything. And we actually had to call the police and have her committed. And when she came home, she was treated and everything was fine for the longest time. So I think medication and good treatment can turn a life for the better. What are your opinions on that? But then the, the, catch to, the dilemma at this point is that the uh, mental health system is so overwhelmed. I mean, especially with COVID, I, I mean, like COVID brought out like mental illness out, out of the closet because, you know, all these people who had been so busy, like, controlling their lives with work and family and everything. When they had nothing to do, they found out that they, you know, had, had a diagnosis. So the, the problem is, I, I mean, the problem as I see it is, uh, and I, I don't know what the solution is, but uh, the, the doctors and the social workers and the psychologists and the psychotherapists, they're just like totally overwhelmed by their caseload. So, medication becomes the go-to answer but mm. you know without without talk therapy and without you know the care of a of, of a real physician uh then you know you you're just like shooting in the dark and you know people aren't going to take their medication and you know because of agnes and they think there's nothing wrong with them and it, it's like a snowball effect mm. and it's all because you know, there just are, are too few doctors and, and workers to uh, like deal with the overload of cases. Yeah, no, I agree. And I think the COVID overload was mostly caused by people developing uncontrollable anxiety and depression more than schizophrenia, right. which is a disease I think that needs the most attention of all. Well, it's interesting you say that because uh, you know I've been on a on a more more than a few uh, you know like mental health podcasts, and mm -hmm. in most cases I'm the first or or even or mostly the first, but and most the third schizophrenic that people have ever like interviewed, and wow. I, that that that's really what my mission has become is to be able to like explain you know the, the illness to reality to to the social mm -hmm. world and uh so I, I mean schizophrenic schizophrenia is probably uh it's definitely the most expensive uh psychiatric illness there is i mean more per, person, per person not totally because there's a very small percentage of mental health patients are actually the schizophrenics right but those i think deserve the best treatment and they need it. Well, that brings up another point, which is, uh, you know, that is, I, I think that you know, when I was when I was first diagnosed, you know, they 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 stuck to the regimen that you had to show symptoms for six months before you could be diagnosed as a schizophrenic. Mm -hmm. So I, I I did, and I, I got the diagnosis. But I think that that you know, the schizophrenia as a diagnosis is just thrown around too easily these days, you know, because someone can have like a bad, a bad drug experience, come to the hospital and they, uh, you know, and 
within two days is calling him schizophrenic. And, and that, you know, creates the, the stigma of mental illness for the person. Yeah. And uh, it's just like, but, you know, I, I think a lot of, a, a lot of people I've uh, encountered in my coaching are, uh, you know, I don't think they're true schizophrenics. I think they're like traumatized or, you know, drug induced. And, mm. you know, a lot of them, you know, when, once you get, I mean, like a lot of students at college who got into drugs like I did, and, uh, you know, but once you get them away from the stimulus of the substances, then it's, then you see they aren't schizophrenic. They were just toxic from the substances. Yeah, and you would hope that the doctors recognize it and then slowly taper the medications off and not just withdraw them because then you get the withdrawal psychosis, which then they say, oh yeah, I knew he was schizophrenic, but it's not true. I've seen that too. Well, uh, actually, that that happened. That was responsible for some of my hospitalizations. Is I would stop taking my medication, and within two days to two weeks, I would be back in the hospital. And it was very frustrating for me because I would get off. I would get off the medication, and and I like, as I say, reach that new level of clarity. But then they put me in the hospital and shoot me full. Of, you know, like get get me back on medication, but you know, ultimately it was all for the good because I, I'm, I'm very reconciled to my medication now. And, you know, I thank, I thank the Lord that I found the right one, which is another issue that's coming up these days because the pharmaceuticals are producing so many different uh, drugs for, you know, psychosis and schizophrenia and schizoaffective now that the doctors just can't keep up. So they have to like follow the dosing, uh, you, know, you know, suggestions of the manufacturers who really have no place to, in, in like telling people how to, they should take their medication. Yeah, that's one thing. And then sometimes it's not checked. Do they take them? And sometimes the side effects are not properly checked and they do have side effects. Right. Even the modern ones. And I'm sometimes horrified. I see people that are depressed and they are put not just on an antidepressant, but at the same time on an antipsychotic. I think that's so wrong. Right. But that is done. And I think they overdo it a little bit. And I've even heard that they use antipsychotics for kids. And they are not schizophrenic. They just pester the parents. Say parents need parenting advice. They don't have time for it. They complain about the kids. The kids get antipsychotics. I think that has put the antipsychotics maybe in a bad name. Antipsychotics are life-saving and life, like for, for, for schizophrenia, absolutely. Right. Well, uh, the, the thing about that is uh, when, when you first get on antipsychotics, they make you feel terrible. That, that's the bottom line. I mean, until your body adjusts and gets used to it, then it's not, it's not going to, it's going to be, detriment you're going to think it's being detrimental to your health but the fact is that you know after like six weeks if you stay on it then you know you begin to get better and the medication really starts to take effect and everything yeah. and that that's what you want but you know a lot of people are so impatient and you know so so out in lack of comprehension of their illness that they uh you know they, they don't uh they won't tolerate the medication for long, for long enough to take effect. Mm. So tell me a little bit about what you're doing now. 
and how people that are interested in your coaching services can reach you? Uh, well, my, uh, about a year ago, a good friend of mine uh, approached me and told me about this opportunity for being a uh, financial educator. Uh, and I joined the company right off the bat. I, I figured that I could integrate this financial education into my coaching business and like really give people a complete package of like, you know, not only psychic and emotional support, but also finances, because as you know, Christine, schizophrenia can be very expensive. So it can uh, be expensive and it can rob you of much of your income bearing years. Right. They usually build your retirement and money. So I think financial health is an important part of health. So, so I, I joined this uh, financial education company and uh, our, our goal is to eliminate financial illiteracy in the United States and to give the 98% of Americans who can't afford it access to financial advisors. So uh, this is, you know, this, this has been a job where I can like fulfill my desire to serve people in a way that is, is like very positive. And, you know, we, we help them get life insurance and cover themselves for unexpected events and everything. And we also like give them counseling about how to like, you know, increase their disposable income and stuff. Okay. So, uh, so uh, I have been doing that for about a year. And in fact, uh, I, I just came from the convention last week in Las Vegas. And uh, that, that's another thing that, that I've improved is for the longest time, I couldn't leave Hackensack. Uh, I, I was like agoraphobic about Hackensack. And, you know, in the last two months, I've like taken a trip to Lake Tahoe with my team. And then with my company, I, ha I just had the convention. So, uh, and so uh, I, I'm very happy to be able to like have the wherewithal to be able to, you know, do this financial literacy and to help people. And uh, my, uh, my website is www.dewlivelove.net. Wonderful. I will make sure that it's under the video and in all uh, text with the, with the podcast so people can get it and can contact you. And uh, they, I, uh, I also have a phone number they can contact too if you okay. It's 201-509-0871. Uh, okay, by all means, contact Dale, uh, especially if you are uh, somehow affected by mental illness, and many people are, and need financial recovery too, because financial health is important, and you know that. Dale, I thank you so much for sharing this inspirational story and it gives people hope there's recovery possible even from serious mental illness. Well, that, that, that's, that's my goal is to just give people hope and let them see that it's not a totally black situation and there, there is a light that can be shown on the whole situation. Now, if for the end of the podcast, if you could Tell the listeners in one sentence, one thing that you would give them advice. What would it be? Be patient, have faith, and live love, and let, let, let love reign. Wow, I love that. Thank you so much for being on this podcast, Dale. And uh, let's sparkle for mental health.
Bye-bye. Thank you very much for having me, Christine. I, I really appreciate the opportunity. Thank you, Bill. Bye-bye.